last couple days, I had a conversation with somebody, and they were expressing this, this trouble in their heart as they recognized patterns in their life where they felt like they would get to a certain place in God and they would repent and they would make things right and they would work on this and they would do that and they would get to a certain point and then it seemed like every time they would fail and they would fall short and this would happen and they would do it again and they saw these cycles in their life and it came back so powerfully to me when I was caught in that cycle and I remember one day I was at the bottom felt like I was that close to giving up. I didn't know what to do, and I remember telling my dad, I said, Dad, I, the exact, exact thing. I feel like I've tried everything, but no matter what I do, I get to this certain point, and it seems like I just repeat this cycle. And what changed at that juncture, looking back, was I remember I was out in the field at one of my uncle's properties, and I was just walking, praying, saying, God, what am I going to do at this point? What, what am I going to try different that I haven't done? And the word of God came to me in various contexts. And what I decided that day is I said, God, this time I'm going to obey your word. No matter what it says, I'm not going to project into the future that, okay, maybe I'm going to repeat this cycle. Or what does this mean over here? What does this mean if that is this? Or whatever the case is. God, I'm going to obey you just because you spoke it. And that put me on a course where I just started doing that. And I felt the power. And God has allowed me to escape that cycle. And I feel such a faith in the power of unqualified obedience. Amen. Not arranging anything, not looking forward, but saying, God, your word is shining here today, and I'm going to take that step. Amen. I on my heart in the meeting today. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punishes us according to our iniquities. For the heaven are high above the earth, so great is his mercy to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, and so far he removed our transgressions from us. As a father have compassion on his children, so the Lord have compassion on those who fear him. And I feel it in the meeting today that the Father is have pity and compassion. So the Lord has took our scene as far as the east is from the west. And when I came to God, he was told me that the east and the west are never meet. Our scenes are never meet us. But it twice it say to those who fear him, not afraid from him, but fear him. And when I hear the word of the Lord today, you're already speaking to us about his mercy and compassion. And he took us our sin. He left one thing for those who fear him, to obey his word. The gratitude for the word of God is translated in our obedience to the word of God. And then, believe me, the east and the west and never meet. We sang the first song, but we want to thank him how he saved us and changed us. And I'm so happy. And thankfully, it didn't happen only 2,000 years ago there in Jerusalem on the cross. But it happened yesterday and today. Our obedience, our walking in God's light, and it's come our way. It will keep our sins untouchable of us. They can't get us because we keep making distance from them. As soon as we stay and stop obeying him, the darkness, it's just a matter of time, is going to overtake us. But I can hear the grace and the gratitude that he gave us one thing we can do back. Obey him. Because obedience is better than sacrifice. And I feel such a gratitude and a confidence that, that your sin will never catch up with you if you keep obeying the word of God. Your word is the light. Is a lamp unto my feet and a light into my pathway. You used to walk with this lamp hanging and the light will shine the next few steps. Just take it. Just go there. Just commit to it. Just stay there. And the light keep leading us forward and the darkness stay behind. Brother Jed was sharing that about how he broke that cycle. I... I felt the Lord quickening something in my mind that happened uh, a number of years ago. 
I, I came into a situation in my life and I just did not feel the grace of God. It just seemed like it, it was missing. And I was praying one morning, why, why do I feel this way? And the Lord spoke something very simple to me that the power drained out of every small disobedience. And I, I couldn't even think of anything right off the top of my head that I'd been disobedient in. I was looking for big things that I hadn't done, <coughs> shouldn't have done. And then I, as I began to pray, I started remembering the smallest little things that seemed so insignificant at the time, but I had failed to complete, to follow through on. And as I began to look at that, I felt such a faith rise up in my heart that the power was going to come back as soon as I did these things. And a couple of times in, in the last few years, three times to be exact that I can think of, Somebody has come to me about a baby that was failing to develop. They got to be, you know, 18 months old and they weren't walking. Or they got to be a year old and they still hadn't rolled over. And three different times this has happened where this baby was very behind for some reason. And we always thought that what was happening was that something was wrong with this baby, something was wrong in their brain, and because of that, they didn't roll over, or they didn't crawl, they didn't walk. But what actually happened was just the opposite. There was something wrong in their brain because they didn't roll over. Then they, then they didn't because they didn't roll over, then they didn't learn to get up on their hands and knees, and then because they didn't crawl, they didn't learn to stand up, and then because they didn't walk, they didn't develop the muscles they needed, and it actually starts affecting their brain. And one baby couldn't even, he should have been able to learn that if you hide a toy under a cup, he should look under the cup, and he couldn't do that. And it all traced back to not ever rolling over. And I felt God speaking to me that when that had happened three times, that that is exactly how we are. It, faith and obedience build upon faith and obedience. And you look back and you say, why am I not a part of this? Or why hasn't God done this? And you look back and say, I, I actually didn't roll over. So now I can't walk and I can't perceive in my mind that there's something under that cup. And I just feel that God has treasures to reveal to us if we will obey those things are going to be revealed, one thing after another. The first scripture I read this morning was from Psalms 81. And so as the Lord has been speaking to us, my heart has been burning within me. And I want to just read to you from Psalms 81. I think I'm going to start in here. O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you would listen to me, let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I, Yahweh, am your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. This was the scripture I studied all morning. The Lord spoke it to me last year, but he had me back on it this morning. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart, to walk in their own devices. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways and I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. Those who hate Yahweh would pretend obedience to Him and their time of punishment would be forever. But I would feed you 
with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. And the Lord is lamenting over Israel's condition. And he's saying that there's this potential, there's this power, this available victory. He says, how quickly I would subdue your enemies. How quickly I would turn my hand against your adversary. But you would not obey. The powerful thing is that the judgment that he decrees is releasing us to our stubbornness. The judgment that he decrees is releasing us to our own devices. And that's the judgment of the endless spiral of unfruitfulness. That's the judgment where we never break the cycle. But that's the cycle that Brother Jed was saying God helped him break in his life. Some of you have heard Brother Zach give his testimony. I've had the privilege of hearing it a couple times. And each time, his repentance pivots on this moment where he walks out of a bookstore and he's getting in his car to do his thing and the Lord just drops this word in his heart, go speak to that person. And the fulcrum of his life, the crossroads between victory and defeat, between fasting and seeking and finding, is just that decision, am I going to obey? And he gets in the car and puts it in reverse and is backing out. And he told us that the Lord said to him, you go where you want to go. You say what you want to say. You get up when you want to get up. You wear what you want to wear. You eat what you want to eat. Where am I in this picture? And he puts the car back in park and he goes and talks to the man and God brings him to a lasting, fruitful, victorious repentance that has impacted and touched the lives of many since. It's exactly the same thing. Paul condensed this down so concisely when he said, I tell you, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. I love these simplifications that we're tempted to think are oversimplifications that get us scratching our heads. Why does he make it sound so easy? I tell you, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Well, praise God. Let's just do that. How do we do that, Lord? Well, we got to realize that our heart is not neutral territory. It's hotly contested territory. The battleground of our mind between our ears, it's not neutral territory. And so we're not just going to kind of groove into the Spirit one day and, hey, look, I got the victory. Wished I'd stumbled on this sooner. There is a war. <laughs> and our stubborn will is on one side of that battle trying to save us from obedience trying to protect us from submission everything in this phony world that you live in is geared around selling you slavery in the name of freedom it's all about labeling things as freedom and isn't that what Peter says when he talks about the false prophets, they promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves to corruption. In that same chapter, he says, they deny the Lord who bought them. So at the, at the pivot of rejecting Christ's lordship and embracing bondage is a promise of freedom. Is a promise of 
Liberty. But it's a lie. And so this walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. I mean, this really is simple because you've got to know what he also says when he says the flesh wars against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are in opposition to one another. This is not neutral ground. There's a war going on. We've got to believe that. We have to come into a meeting knowing that there is an active agent that is determined that we not get from this service what God has intended. There is not a passive agent. There is an active enemy. And I'm not just talking about the devil. I'm talking about you. <laughs> I'm talking about me, my pride, my stubbornness. And that's what he's saying here in Psalms 81. He says, I wanted you to open your mouth and I would fill it. I wanted to give you wild honey and the finest wheat. But there's this stubbornness. You see this set jaw like a child sitting in his high chair. Won't open his mouth to the provision of mom. That's how we look to God. When we are unwilling to surrender we are unwilling to obey. The Lord says through Isaiah, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good. What is that way? Following their own thoughts. A people continually provoking me to my face. What is the provocation to God's face? When we live by the lordship of our own thoughts, when we live by the tyranny of our own conclusions and desires. So we're not going to come to a place of obedience to God until we come to a place of disobedience to self. You are not going to change allegiance. You are not going to come under submission. You are not going to say, as for me, my boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places until you come to a core disobedience to self. I was speaking to Brother Cash after he got back from his mission trip in Africa and Asia. I asked him, he was talking to me about different needs in different places, and he said, you know, Brother Ossie, the truth is, he said, I spent so much time in that independent way of doing ministry apart from the body that he said, I can't stand it. He said, I don't ever want to go there again. I don't ever want to go anywhere without the body or do anything without the body. I want to be part of the body of Christ, an extension of the body of Christ. What am I hearing? I'm hearing someone who is committed to disobedience to the independence of the flesh. And that's someone who God is going to use beyond their imagination. Maybe even beyond their ability or their gifts. God is going to use that person. I was driving down Franklin after getting back from South Africa and I told Rebecca, I said, you know, I was talking about Brother Zach and Simeon and I'd spent this time with several brothers and we just we had a wonderful time of ministry and unity and the, the power of the Spirit. And I said, honey, the thing about Brother Zach is he is a man who has been pulverized by the world so that Jesus can be Lord of his life. Amen. And I said, but you look, at, you look at the people who have led this church. Dad, Brother Howard, Brother Gary, Brother Joel, Brother Tony. And go ask them if they were not first pulverized by the world such that they gave up all illusions. They were so disillusioned that nobody could sell them slavery in the name of freedom anymore. Nobody could entice with those promises that they'd already pursued because they found the dead end of those promises. And you know, some of the biggest battle that we fight in this church as Christians, I don't mean just this congregation, but the church worldwide, is that we live in a phony, baloney world. We live in a false world. 
with false promises, with false problems, and increasingly false people. I told Brother Zach, I said, you know, discipleship in the church at large is going to prove impossible until accompanied by persecution or some kind of serious hardship that snaps people out of their dollhouse and makes them start seeking God over real issues. So much of what floods the airwaves of need, it is utter self-centered sap. It is not real. It is just narcissism. Sticky, gooey, garbage narcissism. People are losing their lives from it. Why? Because it has been so flattered and embellished and built up through the media. Everybody's telling you what you want to hear. You can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. No, you can't. You're special. No, you're not. You're average. We all are. 90% of professors write down that they believe that they are in the top 10 percentile of the best professors that are out there. And their students mirror them exactly. But what is this? This is built, this lie, this is flattered the flesh and promised the flesh until the flesh is just fattened for the slaughter of great disappointment. And when real life starts happening, people are utterly dismantled. They lose their minds. They lose their souls. They lose their spouses. They lose everything. Whereas Jesus and the scripture is pretty plain with us. You're bad. Your heart is exceedingly wicked and you can't even know it yourself. But God has a purpose for you. And he's got a redemption for you. And if you'll submit to him and put him on the throne of your life, he's going to do great things through you. Not things that flatter your image or stroke your ego or puff you up in pride, but eternal things. Things that change the world. Things that give people hope. That's what we can be part of. Hallelujah. I don't want to be one of those people who can't be discipled until war breaks out or famine breaks out or some calamity. How many of you know that the churches fill up every time America has some contraction of crisis? Everybody was in church. I mean, the most narcissistic senators and Congress people were out on the Capitol. God bless America. This God that you hate, that you're determined to expunge from the schools and from all of life, you're out there singing God bless America when tragedy comes. Because it has a way of rearranging our priorities and showing us how delusional we've become. I told my mom, I said, you know, the saddest thing is that you see people who live their lives building illusions and then they die and you watch those illusions dismantle through the process of reduction, the reduction of death. But just at the moment when their last illusion comes toppling down, they pass from this life and they don't get to come back and tell us, guys, don't go there. It's madness. It wasn't worth it. What would they speak to us from the grave? What would the rich say? What would the vain say? What would the hedonistic seekers of pleasure say? What would they tell us? They would say, don't go here. It's utter futility. Vanity, vanity, says the preacher. It's a waste of time. It betrayed me when I needed it most. That's why he says wisdom is in the house of mourning more than the house of mirth. So we got to come to grips with the fact that even sitting in a meeting like this, we're going to encounter God and we're going to learn to roll over or crawl toward Him. But that's not going to happen in a void. That's going to happen because 
we came to the end of ourselves. We came to the end of our Pollyanna worldviews and dreams, and we said, Lord, I just want to be part of what you're doing that is enduring on the earth. If you're not disobeying the flesh, you have no hope of obeying the Spirit. The Spirit cannot take up residency in your life until there is a great eviction of the king's selfish flesh. Isn't that what Jesus was saying? Speaking of the Spirit, He said, you cannot enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods until you first bind the strong man. Then you can plunder his goods. And that strong man who needs to be bound is our will, our viewpoint, the stubbornness of our own minds, the way that seems right unto a man that ends in death. Paul says the man who thinks he knows something does not know anything, yet as he ought to know. How many of us want to walk by the Spirit? What does that even look like? Seriously, what does it even look like to walk by the Spirit? You would agree that that's somewhat metaphorical, the term walk by the Spirit, right? But what is the metaphor and how do we interpret that? We say it all the time, walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? Brother Tzafrir quoted, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. What did Paul mean when he said walk by the Spirit? Would the Spirit be our legs? Or would the Spirit be our light? Or would the Spirit be the path that we took? Or would the Spirit be the voice calling us down the right path? What does he mean walk by the Spirit? Oh, the Spirit is our legs. The Spirit is our path. The Spirit is the voice, and the Spirit is the light. God wants us to get up and obey Him with nothing but faith to walk on. Do you see it? God wants us to get up and speak for Him with nothing but the anointing to say. I tell you, walk by the Spirit. I love that song where it says, I thought of myself as a mighty big man, but I can't even walk without you holding my hand. I thought I could do a lot on my own. thought I could make it all alone. I thought I could build on life's sinking sand, but I can't even walk without you holding my hand. I thought number one would surely be me. I thought I could be all I wanted to be. Oh, God. Does the paralytic lie by the pool with the power to move? No. No, he doesn't. No, he lies there in his incapacity. He lies there in his brokenness. He lies there in his paralysis. But whenever he starts to encounter the living, breathing, moving, numinous Spirit of God through the Word of God, suddenly he can move. He can roll over. He can crawl. Or in his case, he can get up, take up his mat, and go home. And that's how we are. And if we would content ourselves with paralysis until the Spirit moves, then we would walk by the Spirit. If we could say, God, I want to do something. I want to say something. I want to go somewhere. But I don't feel your spirit yet. I just need you, God. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've felt that way. And I say, Lord, if this is you, Jesus, would you just give me that assurance of your presence, that wind in my wings? Would you just give me that sense? Because I don't want to do what I can do without him. I only want to do what can be done with Him and through Him and by Him and in Him. I want to walk by the Spirit. 
the church is so full of what man can do without God. Sermons that man can preach without God. Programs that man can perform without God. Worship that man can render without God. Evangelism that man can accomplish without God. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. I don't want old strength. I want renewed strength. I want the Spirit of God. They shall rise up with wings like eagles. What if fathers waited until the Spirit came before they began to address issues? What if husbands waited until the Spirit came before they tried to help their spouse? What if brothers and sisters waited on the Spirit and sought the Spirit before they tried to evangelize for Jesus? What if we really believed that we couldn't do anything without Him? Isn't that what Jesus said in John 15, severed from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now we know we can do a lot, but it's the kind of a lot that Paul's speaking of when he says it profits nothing. It's a whole lot of doing that, a whole, that amounts to a whole lot of nothing. I want to walk by the Spirit. What walking by the Spirit means is obeying the impulse of the Spirit. The word Jesus uses for denying the flesh is exactly the same word He uses when He warns that we not deny Him. If we understand how to deny the flesh, then we understand how not to deny the Spirit. How many of us know that the flesh gives us ideas that are bad? And we deny them. We suppress them and we move on and survive without doing them, hopefully. How many of us know that the flesh prompts us to eat that extra slice of cake and we better not do it? We know how to deny the flesh. We may not do it all the time, but we know how to do it, right? Denying the Spirit's the same way. If you want to quench the Spirit, just wait until He moves. Wait until that breeze of God's wind, the pneuma of God, just moves over you. And stay nonchalant. Just stay passive. Stay indifferent. Don't act like you can't survive without it. Because, come on, you're a self-sufficient man. Don't act like David. I mean, good grief. That's kind of silly when you read it. How does he put it here? Yeah. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. That's what it feels like when you've gone too long without hearing from God. I need to hear the Lord. I need to feel His presence. No, no, no. Be one of those self-satisfied Christians who can go years without a move of the Spirit. Yeah, that's how you quench it. My soul thirsts for God. And then he qualifies it for the living God. He doesn't want that mute idol. He doesn't want words about God. He wants a visceral experience encounter with God. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. And then he says, I have seen you in your sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life my lips will glorify you I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands my soul will be satisfied with the richest of foods with singing lips my mouth will praise you David says, I come in like a deer that's been chased through a desert. Ah, I'm panting. I'm parched. I've got to get to the presence of God. Listen, you're not a big, strong man if you can live without the Spirit. You're just a fool living by the lies of the flesh. 
you're just a fool living by illusions that aren't going to give you the energy to do God's will when you most need it. If you're a real strong man, if you're a king and a prophet in Israel, then you feel your need for God. It always used to strike me that I would go and minister or preach or teach in a various place and my parents would be out of town or later when he was sick, my dad would be on his sick bed and they would call me up and ask me, what did you preach? And I would give them a 10-minute condensed version and they would be on the other end, long distance, weeping and worshiping God and praising the Lord. Why? Is it because they don't know the Word of God as well as you? They don't know their Bible as well as you? They're more sinful than you? No, it's because they hunger and thirst for the Spirit of God knowing they have no life, no joy, no power, no purpose, no future apart from it. Not thoughts about God, but an encounter with God. I'm going to take you to Romans 10 here in just a minute. Psalm 63, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. How many feel that you're thirsty for God. I don't want to leave this meeting without drinking deeply of the presence of God. Thank you, Jesus. If there's something in this word, I know I'm the one speaking it right now, but if there's something that in this word that is for me, God, I want to get it. I want to be changed by it. Because I know how easy it is to be in bondage to the flesh. I know how hard it is to break that cycle. And I know how hard it is to walk by the Spirit. It needs to take the rightful place in my life. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, I have seen you in your sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God. All I'm saying is he was thirsty. He didn't feel sufficient without God. You know, I don't want to learn to serve a mute God. And if you do, you're in the wrong place. If you're more scared of encountering God than you are living without Him, you're in the wrong place. If you're secure and sufficient in your life without Jesus, you're in the wrong place. And if you think encountering Jesus is reading words about Him, you're wrong. The second Adam became a life-giving spirit. And His Spirit is among us. His presence is with us. And that's our only hope. That's our only salvation. Are you thirsty? Don't ever be embarrassed of coming to a meeting parched for God. We need the Lord. We need Him in the songs. We need Him in the testimonies. And don't ever be ashamed of your desperate need for the presence of God. If you can live without water, you're some kind of weird creature. And if you can live without the water that Jesus gives, you're living by lies. Hallelujah. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for the Jews, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that a man who practices 
the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Paul is going to quote us the righteousness that we're saved by. So we're going to get a quote from the kind of righteousness that saves us. Would you like a quote from that kind? Because the other kind doesn't seem very promising. The righteousness based on faith speaks. It talks to us. And what does it say? Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Now he's quoting from Deuteronomy here. He's quoting partially from Deuteronomy here. Where they were given the law and they were told, don't don't begin to say in your heart who will go across the sea to gain this commandment. Or who will go at far to bring this commandment. And then he says, For the commandment is near to you that you should hear and obey it. My paraphrase. Amen? So in the scripture that he's quoting, they're reaching for what? The commandment and the ability to obey it. All right? Now, Paul has a different equation. Because he's not reaching for a commandment, though he is. But he is reaching for something more than a word or a command. What is he reaching for? He's reaching for Christ. He's talking, he's saying that the righteousness of faith is going to rebuke people who think that Christ is too far for them to encounter him. The dilemma is, do I need to go up to meet Christ? Do I need to go down to connect with Christ? So what he wants them to connect with is not a commandment, but the Lord Jesus himself. The righteousness of faith talks to us and it says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, he adds in the parenthetical, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The rhema is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the rhema of faith which we are preaching. The Greek word there that he's using translated as word. So what is the, what solves the dilemma of reaching to encounter Christ? For those who want to encounter Christ, faith tells them stop acting like he's out of reach. Up or down. Because you can still encounter him in the rhema of his word. There are two words that are predominantly used for word in the Greek. And one is logos and the other is rhema. There are other words, but these are your predominant words. Logos can mean many things. Rhema always refers to the proclaimed anointed word of God. So it's tying to in the beginning was the Logos and the Logos was with God. But here he's using Rhema, the proclaimed anointed word of God. So what solves the dilemma is an encounter with the word. What kind of word? The word of God is dead and lifeless. Is that what it says? No. What kind of word? The Word of God is living and powerful. If you don't want to encounter something powerful, then don't ask for the Word. (laughs) Because God's Word is living and powerful. You and I both know that words are not living. But Jesus said the words I speak are spirit and they are life. Now the spirit is alive, right? So the only reason the Word of God is living is because it's spirit. That's why he calls it the sword of the spirit, which is the Word of God. We're getting back to the battleground where we're going to decide whether to embrace that rule of the spirit or remain under the tyranny of self-will. 
But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. It's important. You'll see it here in a minute. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in salvation or righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all abounding in riches for all who call on him. Now he's going to create another dilemma. Verse 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I want you to listen to what I taught about 1 Corinthians 12 to better understand what he's getting at here. Paul is saying that unless the gifts of the Spirit remain active in the church, you're going to find yourself serving a mute God and you can't legitimately claim that Jesus is Lord unless he's confronting you through the gifts of the body. So that's my assertion. You can go listen to it. But here he's, he's going to prove it. And I wish I could have done this there and that here, but we don't have time. Verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now we know that there is a kind of calling on the name of the Lord that does not equal salvation. Because Luke 6 says, in the last day many will say to me, what will they say? Lord, Lord. And in Matthew 7, they all start with Lord. So he is not saying that you can just arbitrarily, Lord. And that proves that you're saved somehow. That's not what he's talking about. Listen to how he says, he says, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? Then he creates the dilemma. Verse 14, how then... So he says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be what? Will be improved? Will be helped out? No, he says, will be saved. So then he asks a question. How? And this is a sandwich. He's going to return to where he started. With don't, the righteousness of faith says, stop, asking, stop acting like you can't encounter Jesus. That's what I'm paraphrasing it as. Old dying translation. Verse 14. How will they call on him. Let's just stop there and not finish the sentence. Well, that's easy. Just say Christ. No, no, no. That's not the kind of calling that's going to save you. So listen to what he says. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? Now look, look at this even better. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard. Now your translation may say of whom they have not heard, but they'll probably put that of in italics because that's not how the grammar reads there. Not in the majority, not in the Alexandrian text, not anywhere. It's not how it reads. I'm reading from the New American Standard who actually gets this correct. Not everywhere, but here. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Can you agree with me that Paul is saying that saving belief necessitates an encounter? He does not say how will they believe in him about whom they have not heard. The grammar in the Greek is how will they believe in him whom they have not heard. And he does not say, and how will they hear? Well, just give them a Bible. He returns to the idea of encountering the anointed word of God, the rhema of truth. What he has basically done here is said, you need to encounter Jesus and you need to stop acting like it's a problem that makes you have to go up into heaven or go down into the abyss. You need to get into a place that will bring the anointed rhema of God. And when that word is coming to you, you are encountering the Lord Jesus. Not the man. I'm not Jesus. You're not Jesus. None of us are Jesus. 
but it is possible that he would anoint his word to represent an encounter with his very presence. And he indicates that you can't have the kind of belief that you need until you encounter God in that sort of way. How does John say it? That which our eyes have seen, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. There is a word that is an encounter with God. Amen? Or what is the other scripture? We have heard of him by the hearing of the ear, but now, how does it say? But now my eyes have seen you. So there are different levels of hearing God's word. But the kind that produces the faith to get you out of the pool paralysis and on your feet into obedience is an encounter with the anointed word of God. And if you don't know how to respond, and if you respond to that rhema the same way you responded to the philosophies of man and the pseudo-philosophies of Christ peddled by the world, you're never going to come to the kind of faith that you need to break the cycle. To encounter His Word is to encounter Him. To encounter His Word is to encounter His Spirit. Jesus told the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have life. But they are those that speak of Me. And you will not come to Me. But then Paul says, Don't begin to say in your heart, We can't go to Him anymore. Because Paul says the Word is still coming forth. The power of God is still being manifest in the world through the anointed preaching of His Word. He says, How will they hear without a preacher, and how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good tidings, or the gospel. However, they do not all heed the good news. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Let's make a full circle. Change the way you listen. Change the way you respond. Develop a hunger and a thirst for the Spirit of God. And when God speaks to you, no matter how small or great it is, do it with all your might, with the strength that God supplies. Thank you, Jesus. If you don't, you're going to get stuck in your unbelief. Thank you, Jesus. You're not going to be able to process poolside commandments like you did philosophies of man. You're not going to be able to sit in judgment analyzing it. What is he saying? You're going to have to say, God, I, I want to encounter you. I want to meet with you. I want you to speak to my heart. I want you to rob me of my fears and endow me with faith that is the victory that overcomes the world. And I trust you, God. I believe you're going to do it. I believe you're going to do it today. Hallelujah. If I could change one thing in those who are stuck, I would change how you listen. If I could change one thing in those who are stuck, I would change how you respond to the presence of God. Amen. Who can be cool when their heart's on fire? Or settle down when their hopes are higher. Who can come into a meeting panting like a deer. And feel the waves of grace flowing through the worship. I consider the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Man does not live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Oh thy word O oh God is settled forever in heaven. If it conflicts with my carnal mind and my opinions. I'm not going to stick to my stubbornness and make that my judgment. Your word is truth. Amen. Change my reality. Change my worldview. Change what I think. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Hallelujah. Somebody says, well, I want to experience God, but I keep telling him what to do and he doesn't do it. Something like that. You don't need to tell him what to do. You need to learn how to be responsive to what he's already doing. Jesus said that once, you know. He said, if the works had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, which happened in you, they would have repented long ago. We think it would be more powerful to encounter things of the past because that's convenient for the flesh. 
But what if you are encountering a promise and a presence and a power of God that people have sought for for generations? What if there is a promise that you can move into right now? You say, well, I don't know if I could do great things. He doesn't ask you to do great things. He asks you to roll over. Just twitch. Just acknowledge that you heard him. Just say, yes, God, I think that might be you. And I'm going to take one millistep towards you. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. And it's by rolling over that we learn to crawl and crawling that we learn to walk and walking and crawling that we learn to speak and to think well. Mathematics. People who cannot figure out math or reading, they teach them to crawl. They teach them to crawl as adults because they got to go back and act like a child, become as a little child before they can go on to wisdom. You need to learn to respond to Jesus as a needy child. I need your presence, God. I don't need ideas. I don't need philosophies. I don't need, I don't need you to do it for me. I need to learn how to respond to you. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. So, Lord, help us to walk by the Spirit. Help us to disobey the flesh that we might obey your voice, God. I yield to you, Jesus. I hunger and thirst for you, God. Help us to encounter you in the power of your rhema word, Jesus. Amen. Oh 